My previous episode was called, This is When I'll Buy These Companies. And in it, I went over my valuation for every company in my portfolio. I gave a range of what I consider to be undervalued, what I consider to be fair valued, and what I consider to be overvalued. And the video got 46,000 views so far. That's pretty good for a few days. It has over 400 comments. So I wanna check out some of the feedback. I'm sure it's gonna be filled with people saying how amazing the video is and how much they emphatically agree with all my valuations. Let's go ahead and start off with Strong Hobbit. He commented just four hours ago, Microsoft is a great company, but it's ridiculously overvalued. Also, the price to free cash flow basis, I would maybe start to build a position around $200, but even then, I would consider it fully valued. $200, my, my range of fair value for Microsoft is currently 350. We have Connor saying, Joseph, where are you getting these numbers from? How are you deciding what price is undervalued and overvalued? Are you using cash flow models or what? It sounds like you're just pulling these numbers out of thin air. All right, well, I'm not pulling the numbers out of thin air. Let's go ahead and read a couple more of these. We have a comment from Plutus here who says, interesting to see your valuations. Your predictions seem way too optimistic, in my opinion, and unfortunately have always seemed to be as long as I have followed this channel. There is no margin of safety included, which will leave you little room for unexpected situations. Well, that's not great feedback there. Let's go ahead and move on to another comment here. The Life of Pablo says, sorry, but this video is really useless compared to your other videos. These analyses are a joke. You think the fair price of Starbucks is XY because you think the Chinese business will do well and you think they have a bright future? That's not an analysis. That's going after your feeling. This one has 29 upvotes, okay. Now reading through these comments, there's a lot more similar ones. So what we're gonna do in this video is address these comments specifically. The answer is no. I'm not basing my fair value estimates of these companies on a hunch or on a good feeling or how I think things may or may not go in China for Starbucks. And no, I do not think that my valuations are overly optimistic. To the contrary, I actually think they're very realistic and in most cases, very conservative. And I wanna go through in detail and explain how I got to these valuations with a few examples. So having said that, we have these valuations to get to and we'll get to that later in this episode. If you wanna skip to that part, I'll leave a timestamp in the video. For right now, we have to do a portfolio update and I have to go over last quarter. We just barely closed out Q3 of 2022. So let me start off with the past 30 days. I took a screenshot of it so we know how we did in September. I was down 9.5% in the month of September, which is a total of $34,000 gone. Over $1,000 per day during that month. That was one of the worst months ever in my portfolio. In fact, I think it's only rivaled by the COVID sell-off. That's the only thing that really comes close to this. A nearly 10% drop in value in a single month. Now, comparing this performance to the S&P 500 from month to month, this is one of the rare months during the sell-off that my portfolio has actually performed worse than the S&P 500. So I actually lost more value than SPY. Part of this was driven by Apple going down 9.45%, and that's my largest holding. So I lost nearly $5,000 in value in Apple alone. And then the other majority of this was driven by the consumer companies. Disney was down 13% in the month of September. Church and Dwight has not held up well during this sell-off. It's down 14%. And Nike stumbled the hardest with their recent earnings report, going down 20% in the month of September. So these companies really dragged down my P&L during this time period. Now, September was really bad for my portfolio. But if we actually zoom out a little bit further and look at the entire Q3 of 2022, which goes through the months of July, August, September, 
If we look at that 90-day period, my performance wasn't nearly as bad. In total returns, I was down 1.73% over Q3 of 2022, which means I lost a total amount of capital of $5,637. That's over the 90-day period. To put that into comparison against the S&P 500, SPY actually had a relatively worse performance, going down 4.83% in total returns with dividends reinvested. So the month of September was pretty bad, but Q3 of 2022 wasn't too bad overall. We still beat out the S&P 500, albeit by a small amount. Now, during this time period, I also had a lot of companies continue to pay me cash flow throughout this whole ordeal. As the stocks were trading up and down, I have a constant cash flow of dividends coming in, and this is what it looks like. This is all the dividends my portfolio was paid from July, August, and September. It totals $1,760, which is pretty decent. That's a decent amount of money to be able to reinvest back into these companies. So when I'm doing reinvestments and constantly dollar cost averaging back into my companies, a lot of these reinvestments actually come from dividend payments. I'm not depositing all the money myself. This is always a dream of mine to build up a portfolio big enough that I didn't feel like I'm the only one contributing to it. I feel like there's a helping hand. And now I'm to the point where my portfolio is that helping hand. It's paying me enough in dividends that part of my dollar cost averaging is coming from those dividends alone. And that feels like a very good spot to be at. Another thing that's interesting that I'll highlight over the past 90 days is that my companies are painting a different picture than what the overall market's painting and market participants. Investors are talking about Credit Suisse as the next 2008 event. The global financial crisis has begun. This big bank is going to collapse and it's going to be the doom and gloom of the entire world. There's other articles that I came around and frankly a lot of talk about a nuclear apocalypse with Russia. I kid you not, this is the type of stuff people are talking about right now. This is what a lot of investors are focused on. And this type of reading and consumption of news does affect your investment decisions. It all reminds me a bit of the big real estate bubble in China, how China was going to completely collapse and it was going to ruin everything. And I haven't heard about that news in quite some time. It's like it just blew over. But for a moment there, that's the only thing investors were focused on. But when I actually look at my companies and what's actually going on with them, most of them are doing relatively okay. They're hanging in there just fine. In fact, if I look at the actual dividend raises of my companies over the past 90 days, Apple raised their dividend by 4.5%. Microsoft raised theirs by 10%. Vici announced an 8.3% raise. Texas Roadhouse raised theirs by 15%. That's how concerned Texas Roadhouse is about the future. They just increased their dividend at double the rate of this high inflation. So we have two different narratives going on right now. One where I look at the news and see all the major bad macroeconomic events going on day by day. And then another where I look at my companies and I see warehouses full of people, new warehouses opening that are full of new members, restaurants that literally have lines out the door on a Sunday afternoon. So even though this market has been treacherous in terms of pricing, prices have gone up and down for assets like crazy. Going Going up and down 10% in a single month, outside of that volatility, the companies themselves are actually pretty stable, generating constant cash flow that's increasing over time. In fact, when I look at this on a month-over-month basis and I graph out how much money I'm making, this is what it looks like. It basically follows the same growth that the portfolio has always had. The dividends are increasing over time as I continually compound my share count by reinvesting dividends and by continually DCAing. Last month, September, I earned $735 in dividends. It was near one of my all-time highs. And keep in mind, 
These months are very unique because I held a lot of really high yielding assets like BST and JEPI while earning those dividends. I've sold out of them into lower yielding assets that have higher growth rates. So as I did that, my total dividend amount went down slightly, but the growth rate is starting to increase. When I map out my dividend income on a quarter over quarter basis, this is what it looks like from the very beginning in 2018. Last quarter again was not the highest because I didn't have the super high yielding assets, but it's trending upwards at a very quick speed. And I think as I continually buy into these companies that are raising their dividends 10 to 15%, we're gonna see this amount increase pretty rapidly. Another way to view this is in 2021, I earned a total of $5,606 in dividends. So far this year, year to date, I've earned $5,300, which means I have basically three months to be able to grow my dividends faster than I did last year. So in terms of the actual market, this is a tough market over the past year. There's no way around it. It's been a highly volatile market. There's not many times where my portfolio goes down six to 10% in 30 days. That's not really a frequent occurrence with a portfolio with this many conservative, well-capitalized companies, but that's happening in today's market. The truth of the matter is we're fighting the Fed. That's essentially what we're trying to do. If we think back only a few years, we can remember fondly the times when Jerome Powell was the wind at our backs. He was helping us out. He had the money printers. We had quantitative easing with record low interest rates. The perfect environment for stocks to flourish for everything to go up no matter what it was worth. And that's reversed. Everything is completely different now. The environment is much harsher. Having said that, I feel highly confident about my portfolio. In fact, I've never felt more confident or more sure of the companies that I'm invested in the entire time I've been investing. So we'll see what happens in the future, but as of now, I'm sticking to the plan. I'll continue to buy these companies with the dividends I'm paid, with my constant dollar cost averaging, and reinvest into the best opportunities. I want to loop back to my most recent video. I did a video where I went over my... At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Undervalued fair value and overvalued estimate for every company in my portfolio. And like you would expect, a lot of people had a lot to say about my valuations. Many people saying they're overly optimistic or they don't understand how I got to these different numbers. And this is something that I expected. Valuation is one of the most divisive and one of the most heated topics that an investor can talk about. Almost everyone has a very stern and specific opinion on how an equity should be valued, and those opinions differ greatly. Some people look at valuation and they just look at the P.E. ratio. That's how they value companies. Some people look at the price to sales. Some people might prefer an enterprise value to EBITDA. Some might look at the free cash flow yield or the earnings yield of the company. Some look at the dividend yield and value companies based off of that. Some investors have incredibly complex discounted cash flow formulas where they price out every little thing of the company for the next decade and form their ultimate valuation based off of that. And some investors ignore valuation completely and they simply buy companies after they've traded down in price a bit. 
Now, I'm not going to argue the merits of different valuation methodologies, but I will come up with the way that I see valuation. The first thing that I want to point out is where valuation fits into a portfolio, because investors might mock the person that never looks at valuation with any of their holdings. It's not even a concern for them. But in reality, that's many of the best performing assets over the past 50 years. For example, we can look at just a four instance here. We have Schwab's U.S. Dividend Equity ETF. It's called SCHD. It's one of the most popular dividend ETFs in the world, and it's the flagship Schwab Dividend ETF. And the performance of this ETF is staggeringly good at a 12.4% compound annual return over the past 10 years. Since 2012, it's beat the S&P 500 while giving lower volatility, paying you a higher yield the entire time and with lower drawdowns. This is incredibly good performance that many fund managers have a very difficult time beating. Now, the methodology for this portfolio of these 100 dividend-paying companies is rather complex. SCHD first looks for companies that have paid a minimum of 10 consecutive years of dividend payments. They look for companies that have float-adjusted market caps of above $500 million. So we have consecutive dividend growth, and we have companies that are above the small cap size. That right there eliminates 92.6% of stocks. So right there, they eliminated the huge majority of companies in the world. Now, after they get the remainder list of companies, they say eligible securities are ranked by each of the four fundamental base characteristics, free cash flow to debt, annual net cash flow from operating activities divided by total debt, companies with zero total debt are ranked first. So SCHD does heavily weight the balance sheet of the company, the financial health of the company. It also looks at the return on equity. That's like the ROCE of the company to filter out ones that are low quality from high quality. Annual net income divided by total shareholder equity. The IAD yield, five-year dividend growth rate as defined with this very complex formula. Now, after SCHD gets that final list of companies, they rank them by the top 100. The constituent stocks will remain in the index as long as they are among the top 200 ranked companies by the composite score. The non-constituent stocks are added to the index based on their ranking until the constituent count reaches 100. So every six months, these companies are swapped in and out. And this complex formula is how these companies are selected for this portfolio. But what is SCHD missing? Well, what it's missing is any type of valuation methodology. In no part of forming SCHD does it look at the fair value or intrinsic value of a stock. There's no discounted cash flows on any of these companies. It simply looks at the growth rate of the dividend. It looks at the balance sheet strength and puts them in a portfolio. So SCHD outperforms most investors while not being focused on valuation at all. But this is the case with the S&P 500 as well. Over the past decades, the S&P 500 has outperformed the huge majority of hedge funds, hedge funds that are supposed to buy the lowest value companies. They sift through the markets to find the best deals in the market. But the S&P 500 that has no concern about valuation and simply ranks companies by their market cap, not by their PE ratio, not by their price to sales, not by their free cash flow yield. It only ranks them by market cap. And this index is incredibly difficult to beat. So if valuation was the only thing that mattered when buying a stock, then why does SCHD perform so well with paying no attention to it? Why does the S&P 500 perform so well without paying attention to it or the QQQ or many other great indexes? Well, I think the reason is even though these don't give focus to valuation, they give focus to a lot of other important aspects. For example, SCHD and the S&P 500 do not get attached to stocks. If a stock does not perform well, 
SCHD will dump it right away. The next six months that comes along, the next time that it rebalances, it dumps around 40% of the companies it's invested in. They're out of the ETF and new companies are in. If you don't perform well, you're gone. That's part of how SCHD operates. The S&P 500 is very similar. Companies that are performing well, they move up in the index. It tracks them as bigger and bigger holdings. Companies that don't perform well, well, they get replaced by companies that are. The S&P 500 has around 7% turnover. So it's constantly, every single year, dumping out companies and buying new companies that are better performing. And I think that's important to highlight. It's not just that we should look for companies that are undervalued or fair value. We should always be looking for companies that are heading in the right direction, just like the indexes are. If our companies are not performing well, if they're not growing their free cash flow, if they're not growing their earnings, I don't think they should remain in the portfolio. So I take a systematic approach in managing my companies. When I think that their growth has slowed down or stopped, when I see things reversing with the companies, that's when I move on to different stocks. Now, even though ETFs have great performance and they don't concern themselves with valuation, I think if you're investing in individual companies, you still should be concerned of valuation to some extent. And that's what I try to do with my portfolio as well. I do look at valuations of companies and I do try to buy them at discounts to their intrinsic value or to their value based on the lifetime of the cash flows they'll produce. And I want to explain that concept here. The first thing that I want to address is a common criticism that I received that my companies trade at a higher multiple than the market. For example, right now, the S&P 500 trades at a Ford PE of 16. So 16 Ford PE is where the market's at right now. Well, the majority of my companies trade at a higher multiple. Apple's at a 22, higher than the S&P 500. Microsoft's at a 23. Starbucks is at a 25. Texas Roadhouse is at a 19. Nike's at a 25. Church and Dwight's at a 22. Pepsi's at a 22, and so on and so forth. A lot of my companies trade in the low 20s PE ratio. They're not down there with the S&P 500 at a 16 Ford PE. And many people have cited this as evidence that my portfolio is overvalued relative to the index. So let's go ahead and address this first claim. Is Microsoft overvalued because it trades at a 23 Ford PE ratio while the S&P 500 trades at a 16? Now to answer this question, I want to cite a recent interview from Terry Smith because he has a very similar portfolio thesis in terms of investing in higher quality companies like Microsoft and their given valuation. And this is a common question and criticism that Terry Smith receives. And he responds directly to the same type of question in this interview. But you do have to look at other things. I mean, the the biggest one I would say is this. We are seeking to invest in good companies. Uh, we think there's a very good reason for doing that. We think it's the best long-term strategy. Um, and no amount of cheapness, going back to the sort of debate with value investment, which you didn't raise, but no amount of cheapness will make a bad company a good one. What he highlights here is a very common debate between investors. Terry Smith invests in good companies. He invests in good companies because he thinks that's the best strategy over the long term, over a 20-year time horizon. And he points out that just because a bad company gets to a very cheap valuation, the cheap valuation doesn't magically turn it into a good company. So he sticks to good companies no matter what the valuation is of bad companies. And he goes on to explain in further detail why he has this thesis. It doesn't matter how cheap the shares are. It's not going to become a good business, right? Airlines are not going to become a good business because the P is low. He laughs at the industry of airlines. 
This is one of the value traps that investors have fallen in time and time again. It's true that Microsoft is trading at a 23 PE ratio, higher than the S&P 500. So maybe we could look at a company like Delta Airlines. If the logic follows that the PE ratio is the determining factor in if a company is undervalued or overvalued, then Delta Airlines trading at a 4.6 Ford PE ratio must be an absolute still right now. This must be the best value company in the market. And that's what investors have thought time and time again with these type of companies. They're value traps that suck in even good investors at times. Warren Buffett invested in the airlines and lost $5 billion. Since 2007, Delta Airlines has returned 35%, and the entire industry is no different. Because it doesn't matter if it's at a 4 PE or a 3 PE or a 2 PE, the company is still a bad company no matter where it's trading. When a company has returns on capital employed of 4% and a cost of capital of 8%, it's continually burning investors' cash. Companies like Delta Airlines are continually burning through investors' cash. And I think that's the first thing that investors miss with looking at valuation through the lens of price to earnings. It does not paint a full picture. See, here's what a lot of investors miss when they simply look at the P-E ratio of the company and compare it against the earnings growth of the company. If you do that, comparing P-E ratios to earnings growth, you're missing a very important part of the calculation. That is the returns on invested capital or the return on capital employed. Basically, you're missing how effectively the company can use that earnings and reinvest it back into their business to grow future earnings. For example, here is a chart that shows how important the returns on invested capital are to the calculation of the value of the company. This is given by Credit Suisse. It's an investor that went through and did a very in-depth study on the P-E ratio. I think it's very worthwhile, and I'll link this study in the description of this video. But this is the most important part, in my opinion. If you look at this chart, you'll notice if a company only has a 4% return on invested capital, that's lower than the cost of capital. The cost of capital is somewhere around 8%, and if anything, it's going higher. So a company that gets returns of 4% actually destroys value the more money it earns. The more money it takes in, the more value is destroyed. That's why earnings growth of 4% for a company that has a 4% return on capital is 7.1 times. That's the P-E ratio it should trade at. If the earnings growth is 6%, faster than 4%, the multiple the company should trade at is actually lower because the company's destroying value at a faster pace. And this mathematically makes sense. If a company destroys value in the money it earns, the faster it earns money, the faster it will destroy value. And there's many companies I can highlight as examples of this exact same scenario. Bill is one of them. Billcom Holdings. This is a financial software company. The return on capital employed for Bill is minus 5% in 2020, minus 3% in 2021, and minus 5% in 2022 so far. Every single quarter of every single year, they've burnt more money than they've made. In essence, the reinvestment rate currently is actually destroying value, not creating value. And this mimics the return of the stock. Over time, as a company continually churns through cash, burning more and more of it, because their cost of capital is higher than the returns on capital, the stock price will drop. This one's down 50% from just last year. Palantir's another example of this that I can highlight. So far, every single quarter of Palantir is a quarter of negative ROCE. Their investments have returned less cash than the cost of capital. This has led to value destruction in the company's stock price over the past year. And this will continue until the ROCE of the company. The returns that they earn are above the cost of capital, which is right now around 8%. Now on the other side of things, companies that can routinely 
take money from investors and reinvest it at a higher rate deserve to trade at a higher multiple because they're continually, routinely creating and generating more wealth for the investor. For example, we can look at a company that's, let's say, growing its earnings at around 10% per year. If the company has a ROCE of 4%, that's below the cost of capital, so that earnings growth is actually burning investors' cash, losing value. In that case, according to the actual fair value of the company, it's worthless. If it can't increase its ROCE, it is a money-destroying machine. If the company does earn an 8% ROCE, which is the exact cost of capital, then it will trade at the commodity price of 12.5 times. That's basically the price right now that says the company's neither creating value nor destroying value. It's basically just doing the same thing. And that deserves a 12 times multiple. If we increase the returns on capital up to 16% with a 10% earnings growth, the company now should trade at a 22 Ford PE. Well, let's look at an example of this. Right now, Texas Roadhouse is a company that trades above the market in terms of PE ratio. Trades at a 19.6, so we can round it up and say basically at a 24 PE ratio. The earnings growth of Texas Roadhouse has been relatively quick. Over the past 10 years, it's grown around 14% on a compound annual growth basis. Over the past five years, it's actually accelerated to 15%. Now, it might not go to 15% forever, but I think that Texas Roadhouse will be able to keep their EPS growth at around 10% or above. Now, if we look at that metric, the returns on capital of this company, it currently has a return on capital of 16%. So let's go ahead and look at the chart again. So Texas Roadhouse has return on capital invested of anywhere from like 14 to 18%. We can average it around 16%. And then their earnings growth are well above 10%. Right there, based on this formula, with a cost of capital of 8%, that means that Texas Roadhouse is worth around a 22 Ford PE ratio. Right now, it trades at a 24 PE ratio, and that's assuming a 10% earnings growth rate, which over the past five years, it's grown at 15%. So even assuming the growth rate of Texas Roadhouse slows down dramatically from 15% to 10%, it's still undervalued, even with these conservative assumptions. The company should be trading at that 22.44 PE ratio, even with earnings growth slowing down. But if earnings growth remain 15% or above for the next five years, then the company's heavily undervalued. So when I look at the valuation of Texas Roadhouse, I think this company is undervalued. I think the fair value is around 105. That's based on its growth rate of its EPS, averaging 15% for the past five years, 14% for the past decade. Even if you go back to the past 20 years, they've kept above a 10% growth rate. And I think with their same store sales and their new locations opening, I believe they'll maintain above a 10% growth rate. I think the company has around a 16% return on invested capital. That means the company should be trading right now at above a 25 Ford PE ratio. And the company currently trades at a 19. So I think the company's fair value is around 105, overvalued is in the range of 135. And right now, where it's currently trading, I think it's undervalued. Now, moving on from Texas Roadhouse, we have to talk about Microsoft. This is a company that many people had a lot of pushback saying that my fair value estimate is wildly optimistic and that I'm accepting a lower return when investing in Microsoft. My Microsoft fair value analysis is $350, and I stand by that. Currently, the company trades at $239 which means I believe there's around 46% upside in this stock before it gets to where it should be valued. 
So let's go ahead and look at Microsoft here. The big problem with Microsoft is it trades at that 23.5 forward PE ratio. And again, the S&P 500 trades at a 16 on average. That means that based on the PE ratio, Microsoft is 40% more expensive. That's how much more you're paying for Microsoft in relation to the S&P 500 based on a price to earnings multiple. But again, Microsoft also has differences in the economics of their business. For example, if we look at that very important returns they're getting on the capital that they employ, Microsoft's ROCE is at 30%. So Microsoft's is at 30%. The average of the S&P 500 right now is 16%. That means if you do the simple math, Microsoft's ROCE is currently 87% higher than the total of the S&P 500. The returns on capital are almost double the average of SPY. So think about it this way. You're paying a 40% higher price for the earnings of Microsoft, but you're getting 87% higher returns on capital employed. That's the trade-off here. The investor's concerns are correct. You're paying a higher price, but in reality, you're getting a better deal because a higher price you're paying is buying you better returns. So that's part of what I factor in. The high amounts of consistent ROCE from Microsoft. They earn a lot of money from their investments, and I believe that will continue for a very long time in the future with their major investments into Azure. I think their returns on capital employed will go up from 30%, not down. The next thing that I look at, of course, is the growth rate of the company. Over the past five years, Microsoft has a compound annual growth rate of their earnings at 21.8%. Over the past two years, it's 24% annualized. Now, this is obviously incredibly fast and a very high bar to continue doing. I don't suspect that over the next 10 years, Microsoft will compound their earnings at 20%. I think that is a little optimistic to predict, but I do think they can do it at 10%. If the economy generally grows at 3%, I think Microsoft can grow at 7% above the economy and get a nice 10% CAGR growth. I think that's very realistic. In fact, even looking at the analyst estimates for Microsoft's earnings growth, it is routinely every year above 10%. Every single year for the next five years, it's in the mid double digits. In fact, many of the years, it's in the high teens. So the analysts are predicting 15 to 20% earnings growth. And based on the past 10 years, Microsoft almost always beats the analyst estimates, meaning that those estimates are likely undershooting Microsoft's earnings growth, not overshooting it. So let's go back to the formula here and see how Microsoft plugs into it. Well, the earnings growth of Microsoft is gonna be above 10%. That's something that I'm relatively confident of. Every analyst assessment says it's gonna be above 10% into the high teens. And then we also have the fact that Microsoft has 85% of their revenue as recurring revenue, highly predictable, with a credit rating as AAA, one of the most predictable and reliably growing companies in the entire market. So I think they'll beat that benchmark of having above 10% earnings growth. Then we look at their returns on invested capital. It's literally off the charts. At a 24% ROCE, Microsoft should trade at a 25. It's trading at a 24 forward PE ratio right now but Microsoft has an ROCE of 30. So Microsoft is one of the companies that right now is both off the charts in terms of earnings growth, earnings above 10% per year, and off the chart in terms of returns on capital invested, above 24% per year. 
And when I do the actual math and look at what Microsoft should be trading at based on these assumptions, Microsoft should be trading in the range of the mid-30s, a 35 forward P.E. ratio, which based off next year's earnings means the company should be trading at $350. That is the fair value of the company. So when I say that Microsoft should trade at $350 per share, that's based on the earnings growth of the company that I assume over the next 10 years in combination with their historical returns on capital employed. And then I also look at a lot of qualitative analysis to be able to be sure this company will continue to grow, like research into Microsoft Azure, research into Microsoft Teams, research into their gaming aspect and subscriptions. This number is not random. It's not a dart thrown at the board. That's not how I picked any of these numbers. And I could go through every single valuation for all of these companies, but the video would be five hours long and it wouldn't be a good format for YouTube. So overall, I wanted to highlight a couple examples here to just explain that these valuation assumptions are based on actual formulas and they're based on very grounded assumptions. They're not based on throwing darts at a board or pulling random numbers out of a hat. Now, if you disagree with me and you don't think this is a good way to value a company, that's fine. I'm not expecting everyone to agree with me in how I view valuation of these companies. In fact, I expect a lot of people to disagree. Because like I said, this is one subject where everyone seems to have stern opinions on how valuation should be done for a company. But what I'm doing is explaining the way that I look at it. If you want to invest in cheaper companies, you can invest in the Delta airline at a 4 PE ratio. You can invest right now into Ford Motor Company at a 5 PE ratio, a third of what the S&P 500 is trading at. It doesn't get much cheaper than that. Now, of course, the company doesn't earn returns above its cost of capital. In fact, it continually shreds investors' money, but that's the type of thing you'll get when you invest in very cheap companies. And I've invested in some of these companies before. I haven't been immune to trying to find the cheapest companies in the market. I've invested in companies like AT&T that trade at a 6-4 PE ratio. It's as cheap as it can get. And like all these other companies that trade at very low multiples, they have very poor financial ratios. The returns on capital employed is 5%, meaning that as of right now, AT&T is destroying money. This company will not generate wealth unless it gets this ROCE above the 8%. So hopefully this explains why I choose the companies like Starbucks over the companies like AT&T. With Starbucks, you're paying multiples in terms of earnings over AT&T, but you're getting a company that has much faster, more reliable earnings growth. And with that earnings growth, you're getting actual value creation, not value destruction. When a company can earn above a 20% return on capital employed, that means that they're continually generating more wealth for the shareholder. So at the end of the day, I'm not saying what investing thesis you should have or what valuation framework you should follow. I'm only explaining what I'm doing and what works for me. I'm investing in compounder companies. These are incredibly high quality companies. They have strong franchise durability. They generate high amounts of free cash flow. They have minimal or preferably zero leverage, meaning no debt. They're non-cyclical. They earn money in good environments and bad environments. In many cases, they have recurring revenue through continual purchases of their items or subscriptions and the return capital in the form of dividends and buybacks. Once I identify these type of companies and create my investment universe, I put them on a watch list called the compounders, where I look at these companies' price trade over time. And if I notice a significant sell-off in one of these companies, I check out the valuation of the company. And I do analysis 
analysis to try to determine whether or not it's undervalued. If it's undervalued, I bring it into the portfolio and I start to dollar cost average into it and build a position. And I do that with the stream of dividends that I'm constantly paid for my current holdings in addition to my deposits. Between those two inflows of cash, I build up the new position. And because all of these companies pay me dividends, it adds to my constant inflow of cash so I can build up the next position a little bit faster. So I hope you enjoyed this little bit of a behind the scenes of how I look at valuation. That's going to be it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and I'll see you in the next one.